it is a tremendous place to practice medicine for all the right reasons. There's so many options, plenty of career choices that you make, but you don't have to make them right at the beginning. What you should be doing is your absolute best at every single thing. Clinical excellence is really important. So focus on that and the rest will take care of itself. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome retired Army Lieutenant General Dr. James B. Peake to War Docs. Dr. Peake is a United States Military Academy graduate and received his medical degree from Cornell University Medical College. He is board certified in general surgery and thoracic surgery. He has deployed to combat zones as an infantry officer and as a medical corps officer. He has held numerous leadership positions in military and federal medicine, including serving as the 40th Army Surgeon General and the Secretary of the VA. You can learn more about his bio on warnoxpodcast.com. In this episode, you'll hear about General Peake's early career, deployed in the infantry to Vietnam, and how he followed a path into Army medicine, where he led at all levels. General Peake has had an enormous impact on how the military prepares for and provides excellent care on the battlefield and at home. And he talks about his insights and lessons learned, both in military medicine and at the helm of the VA. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Army Lieutenant General, Dr. James Peake to Wardox. Sir, thanks for joining us today. Good to be with you, Doug. General Peake, you joined the military in 1962 when you matriculated as a cadet at West Point. What prompted you to join the military and why did you choose West Point? Well, my, you go to my high school yearbook, it talks about becoming an army officer. And my dad was a medical service corps officer, my mom an army nurse. So applied to West Point, also had a, an appointment to the Air Force Academy, chose West Point because I wanted to be in the army and I haven't looked back. So following graduation from the academy, you deployed to Vietnam as an infantry officer where you were awarded the Silver Star, Bronze Star with Vita Vice, Purple Heart with Oak Leaf Cluster. Tell us about some of the memorable experiences and how that shaped your pathway forward into Army medicine. Like every single phase in my career, it had to do with the people I dealt with. And I uh, went over actually sitting next to one of my West Point classmates on the airplane. And we went to the 101st, which had been my assignment ahead of time. So I went to the 101st and signed in. And we uh, were in preparatory training kind of the orientation in country and they said we need lieutenants forward so we that was sort of cut short and we went forward and our, my battalion commander was a guy who had been at, at West Point as an instructor with us and so this guy who I'd sat next to a great wonderful officer was we said we wanted platoons and so we were each assigned platoons you know, I had a first sergeant, Creed, who wound up becoming the 82nd command sergeant major somewhere down the pike. My platoon sergeant was a guy named Ed Burkhalter, who was just a, a superb leader, a great soldier, 
went back to Vietnam after that and lost a leg and wound up as a civilian at uh, Fort Benning. But those kinds of people that I was fortunate enough to work with, I had two of my company commanders, Steve Arnold and Charlie Ostat went on to become three-star generals. So I had a great group of people to, to be engaged with, to include all the other platoon leaders in, in the battalion. As it, you say, what did I learn there? Well, I got shot, so I wound up getting to go through the medical evacuation chain and learned all the things about delayed primary closure that I had no idea what that was until I went back to medical school later and understood all the sequence of things that had happened. So I, I had the chance to experience military medicine from that side. I had two great combat medics assigned at different times in my platoon and uh, realized how important they were to the, to the men uh, in that platoon as role models, as caregiver. They, they were helping not only the own ruck, but a significant size medical aid bag too. So all, all of that sort of impacted me, I guess, as I went through my military career. Was there any particular experience in Vietnam that's memorable to you that someone says, hey, tell me a story about when you were in Vietnam? What immediately comes to mind? Oh, Lord, there's lots of stories in that period of time. I guess one of the stories was that when I was getting ready to come back to the United States after the time was up, my year was up, my roommate from West Point was killed in the in the big red one he was supposed to come to the 101st for another six-month extension but he he was killed and his parents his dad was a major general of engineers they requested me to be his body escort officer so that's how i came back bringing my best friend back to be buried at west point i've shared this with doug once before but i also had a, a west point roommate that died in combat in in iraq i didn't have to transport his body back with me. I was remote from him. I wasn't in yeah. the theater of conflict. I'm just curious, how do you how do you actually get handle something like that? I mean, transporting your your West Point roommate back back to the United States. Yeah. I mean, he'd been my Ranger buddy too. Mm. We were we were pretty close. It was tough, but I I was able I was the guy that gave the flag to them to his mom who I'd been to their house many times and his sister we're good friends and it's really hard. He, I went to Dover and I remember he, he was an engineer officer, but he was leading a air rifle platoon. That's how he was killed, but they had the wrong brass on him. And his dad was an engineer officer. His granddad was a West Point graduate engineer officer. So he was third generation, fourth generation West Point. So I remember and that he had, they had a closed casket. I remember realizing I was the last guy to ever see. What was his name? Tommy Hayes, my son's named after him, my grandson's named after him. Wow. Now, when, when you were shot, were you evacuated or were you, did you recover there and go back into the battle? I was taken to the second surge in July and had an initial debridement, which was, as I look back, was probably not adequate. And then I was flown to Natrang, to the 8th Field Hospital there, and got septic and they reoperated on my leg, left it deflated open, and then had a delayed primary closure, then went back to my unit. And I went back and they made me the battalion S3 air. I'd been 
Pathfinder qualified. So they gave me that job and it was a great job. Darshali Kashvili was my boss. He was the brother of John Shalikashvili, who became the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. But he, he was just a great boss. And then when he fleeted up to the brigade as the Brigade S3, he took me with him. He was coming back to be the ranger school, a mountain ranger school commandant. And so I was supposed to come back and be his ops officer. When, when I was in the hospital in, in the Trang, I got a letter. That was my acceptance to medical school. I had uh, applied before I left. There's several schools in Cornell accepted me. So I said, I'm probably not going to go with you to the mountain ranger camp. <laughs> so you had applied to medical school prior to going to Vietnam? Is that how that worked? I did. So once you went to Cornell Medical School, you then decided that you wanted to become a surgeon. What prompted you to pursue the pathway of surgery? Well, I was going to be an army doc and I figured, well, what, what else should you be? So it just seemed like the right thing to do. I was really fortunate. Cornell was a great school. I had a chance to go down to Bellevue and spend a couple of months on the trauma service at Bellevue. That was another great group of people there. People went on to be notable surgeons. Al Culliford actually became a heart surgeon. There were a couple of vascular surgeons that came out of that group too. They were on that, on that same service. It was really a, an incredible experience. And what made you decide to choose the specialty training in cardiothoracic surgery? I thought I was going to go be a surgical oncologist. So I had my, so I went, I, when I finished general surgery, I went and practiced at Fort Belvoir. I did general surgery for a couple of years there, got my boards and so forth and applied to Morris Sloan Kettering for the oncology, surgical oncology fellowship. And the army decided we're not sending anybody because we're short surgeons. So we're not sending anybody to civilian training this year. So the guys at Brook, where I had done my general surgery, I'd done a little extra time on thoracic because I enjoyed that. And they offered me the opportunity to come back, which I did. So you got a chance to to cut your teeth a little bit clinically at, at Belvoir and at Amp Bamsey and, and Tripler. But as you progressed, you also started taking on some leadership roles as department chair, DCCS, deputy commander of clinical services. What kind of led you in that pathway? And for people who are in a position where they're being asked to consider doing one of those leadership positions versus getting out and going into private practice, what, what advice would you give them based on your experience? My experience was not that I had this clear pathway in mind. And that's what I tell my kids that if an opportunity comes up and it looks exciting, take it, do it and do the best you can at it. I enjoyed being a chief resident because I sort of enjoyed organizing things. And then when I was on the staff at Brook doing cardiac surgery, I, I bought a dictaphone office machine, got the army to pay for it and a dictaphone office system and kind of automated a bunch of the op notes and order sets and all that kind of stuff. And so it really allowed us to standardize and win. I mean, we, we it printed out letters to the referring physicians, it was largely the referral practice there. So I kind of enjoyed that kind of thing, but I, what I really was focused on was my clinical practice at that point. When I got to Tripler, General Strevey was the commanding general and he, he is a former cardiac surgeon as well. He wanted a heart surgery program started. So he says, you can 
be the chief of thoracic or you can be the chief of thoracic and chief of surgery. And I says, okay, I'll do that. So it was kind of that opportunity. And then John Howman, who was the deputy commander for clinical services, he was getting ready to retire and he kept going on leave and they kept saying, oh, you come and do that. So I, yeah, I did it off and on for probably about a year and then he retired and they just moved me into the job. So that's sort of how I got into that, more of the administrative roles. At what point did you decide that you were going to pursue a military leadership pathway and then go to the War College? How did you make that decision? Well, I got accepted to the War College from Tripoli. I was right at 20 years at that point and was being recruited to come do cardiac surgery in the civilian world by two of my old friends. And I, it, I don't know. I remember one of them said, well, you're just not ready to leave the army yet, are you? And I says, I guess not. And he says, well, we'll have a job for you when you do. And so I didn't look back. Did you end up meeting any connections when you were at the War College that helped you later on in your career? Yeah, I went to Korea as the commander of the MedCom over there right after the War College. General Becker gave me that opportunity. And then about within a year, every one of the other brigade commanders, mm -hmm. essentially it was a brigade, even though it was a MedCom, it was a brigade level assignment. All the rest of the colonels that had brigades were my War College classmates. So you could get a lot of stuff done that way. Just pick up the phone and say, hey, can you help me with this? And I got that same kind of phone call. So, yeah, there were a lot of connections in that regard. It was very, very valuable. So tell us about that that 18th MedCom experience. You're close to the DMZ. Things can happen very quickly. What were you as the commander and responsible for the medical care and medical planning? What were you most concerned about and what were you planning for? It was actually interesting at the at the war college they had an elective and i happened to take that elective before knowing i was going to go to korea where i played the role of a corps commander and it was exercising the op plan that then i went to korea and that was our basically our op plan so i knew a lot about it at that point and the big worry of course is the invasion of from the north and everything is geared to that. You have to prepare for neo operations, non-combatant evacuation operations. You have to prepare for being able to be reinforced. So we had Team Spirit back then where a huge buildup from the reserve. So I did a lot of work with the reserve component units that were in that trace. And, you know, again, I had great folks to work with. I had like Hank Beimler was my chief of staff. And we had really several sergeant majors in, in the course of two and a half years. Um, I thought it was the best of all work because I had not only the peacetime mission, so I was the commander of the 121 hospital as well as the MedCom commander, and we had a series of clinics that delivered the peacetime care all through the peninsula and had the wartime mission. So we we took our, our caches. We had some kind of pre-positioned war reserve kind of stuff. And we opened them up that hadn't been open for a long time. We exercised with the Koreans, putting our forces on Korean trains, moving up and down the peninsula a couple of times. So it was really an, an exciting time. I had two, two of the guys that worked for me, you, I'm sure Jeff Clark and John Cho became general officers in the AMED and are just great people, but they were young captains at the time. I had the privilege of having Bill Thresher, who 
went on to do great things in the AMED as my evacuation company commander hit 25 Blackhawks. So I learned a lot about training and and about medical operations in that assignment. Speaking of Captain John Cho, I had the opportunity to go and be the commander of the same unit at Camp Carroll in the middle of nowhere, Korea. And and one of the questions I had for you as the commander for the 18th, you've got that whole peninsula with some folks that are just out of their internship caring for entire units. How how do you do that? And and what is your biggest challenge there? Well, the reason John went there and, and Jeff was already there, so I didn't I, I didn't put him there, but I put John in Cap Carroll because I wanted a leader there. Some of my staff counseled me, oh yeah, yeah, but those are the really good guys. You keep them here. No, no, I, that, they got to be out out there where they can lead lead tro- soldiers and take care of patients. Both. So, following the assignment on in Korea, you became the chief consultant to the Surgeon General. Tell us about that assignment and the challenges you faced. I came back and thought the assignment in Korea was pretty busy, as you might expect, and so I thought, well, this will be a kind of a quiet assignment. Have a little time to spend with the family. And of course, the next thing that happened was the Gulf War, right? So that was a very, it it was the greatest thing that happened to me because I was really working with General Ledford on a regular everyday basis, going to the Army Ops Center and understanding how the Army works, which is a complicated business. A lot of people don't have the opportunity to really see it do its mission in those kinds of circumstances. So I'm eternally grateful for that opportunity. But at the same time, we were preparing for, well, General Lanou was the deputy surgeon general at the time. And so we were working on gateway to care. At the same time, we're figuring out how to take the, the army to war, right? So I really learned a tremendous amount. Fortunately, it was a short war, as you all know, but there were a lot of lessons to learn from that war. We, the Army Medical Department, very heavily depended on the reserve component, and we learned about mobilizing the reserves and that they had a lot of challenges in their force structure and in their training and all those kinds of things. And so that experience shaped a bit of my future as well. We did an after-action review down in brought people said i was a sadist but i brought them to phoenix arizona in the summertime because it was cheap and central infecting but we tried to capture lessons learned from the people that had been on the ground in the in the desert there and think through what should we be doing with army medicine to prepare for the future and we shipped all that stuff to the amed center in school we had facilitators from them as well but, you know, I think we had something like three huge three ring binders worth of material that I think did a, was a, a, a good part of shaping the Army medicine in the, for the next 10 years. So looking back at that, what do you think before it happened, what did you really get right? And, and what surprised you? I think we, nobody expected it to be the the quick war that it was. We were very, very worried about burns. They were 
the, the intel said they were filling pits with oil, that they were going to light on fire when our troops came across and all of those kinds of things. So we were worried about the Kimbio defense. And so when it comes to burns, we started looking around and saying, okay, we're, we're, what's our capability? And when you look at the burn unit, it couldn't have handled the massive quantities that we were afraid might happen, which never did, fortunately. So Basil Pruitt was the and trained about every burn doctor in the United States, knew every head of every really good burn unit. And so we just created a network of burn units that we monitored the number of beds they had available and all those kinds of things so that should we have that kind of requirement, we would be able to ship them there. Just one example of the kinds of contingency plans that, that I think we learned from. It's always nice to be overplanned than, than yeah. underplanned. Absolutely. So for those of us that may have been in middle school during Desert Storm, Desert <laughs> Shield, I have a, a couple questions to ask you that you said that I don't fully understand. You had mentioned that there's there was a gateway to care plan, if you could explain that, and then also tell me what challenges you faced in the mobilization of the reserves. Well, the gateway to care was became subsumed into TRICARE. So there was a bit of a debate about which way do you go. So TRICARE used the global partners. I mean, I had Humana and Foundation Health, Federal Services, and which became Health Nets and TriWest and so forth. Gateway to Care said, look, healthcare is more regional. So we're going to train our young captains to go out and negotiate rates locally and create our own networks around our own facilities. And that Jonah knew was very, very much interested in that. And we, we had some good people that are just great young. It was just amazing what our young officers would do if you give them half a chance. But that that evolved ultimately into TRICARE and everybody was, a, it was a tri-service approach to it. And were there any challenges with mobilization of the reserves? We had units that we mobilized that couldn't perform and that were disbanded essentially when they went into country. We had some leadership issues. We had some really shortages of specialties so that you have a forward surgical team with no surgeons, that, that kind of thing. And so I, I was very attuned to that when ultimately I became Surgeon General and we went to war again. So in 1992, you became the commanding general of the 44th Medical Brigade back in the center of the universe, Fort Bragg. And this is after Desert Shield, Desert Storm, major lessons are being learned. How are you able to prepare the units that were under your command for what you thought was coming next in the next challenge? Well, a couple of things. The brigade existed, but not the brigade that I commanded. In other words, they hadn't had a general officer down there since Vietnam for the 44th. So what was the brigade became the 55th Med Group. My young Kim, great, great officer, was the commander of that. And we subsequently became sort of an awkward situation in a way, but we became ultimately very, very good friends and just feel so fortunate to have had the experience with him. But I had people like Hal Blair and... David Nolan was my my three. So we created a staff really out of whole cloth. And going back to the notion of the reserves, we started picking up the reserve trace 
and taking that very seriously. So I traveled all up and down the East Coast doing quarterly training briefs with reserves, teaching them how to do quarterly training briefs, what we expected, what the standards were, those kinds of things, so that to to try to upgun the the reserves in in the in our trace. General Burba was the Forcecom commander initially, and he was pushing that too. General Reimer became the Forcecom commander after that, who I think is just just a super, super guy. But he and I worked for Gary Luck and General Shelton were my two bosses. They'd been, they, they were a team, they were core commanders. But one of the things that I really thought was important was trying to do real world healthcare with our field equipment. So we'd set up the 28th Combat Support Hospital and go out and do hernia repairs, take people out of the hospital and make sure it was to the right standard. And I think that gave our people confidence in it. And they had the clinical skills already, but to be able to do it in a field environment, not as austere for sure as in a deployed environment, but in the field environment, you know, in the training areas of Fort Bragg can be pretty, pretty challenging too. We toyed with using electronic records and trying to introduce those concepts because it was clear that's where things were going. I really credit Dave Nolan for being able to orchestrate getting us into the Joint Readiness Training Center down in Louisiana. So we started bringing every combat support hospital rotate through that. So that that eventually got going and continued. I'm not sure where it is now, but I thought it was really a valuable thing. One of the first hospitals that we brought through there was out of Oregon. And Fred Reese was the adjutant general, was a West Point classmate of mine. So i I felt sorry for him because it was like July in Louisiana. These guys coming from work weren't exactly climatized to it. What we did was use the miles casualties, bring them through the system. We had to turn them around quickly so they could get back in the training. They didn't lose any training days. But it really, it tested every aspect of the system from frontline evacuation. So the medics got good training. The evacuation people got good training. The hospitals were forced to run them through their system. So I think that those were all kind of interesting and important things that we were fortunate to be able to do there at Fort Bragg. So you had these operational commands and then you were able to move back into military treatment facility command where you went to Madigan Army Medical Center in Tacoma, Washington. Tell us about that assignment and the challenges you faced moving from an operational assignment to a fixed facility. The big challenge in that assignment was that it was the first uh, instantiation of TRICARE. So I was the first lead agent for TRICARE. So I had the joint hat plus the hospital command hat plus the, what we called them with health service support areas. So kind of a region that included Alaska all the way down to Oregon and out into Washington state. So it was pretty good sized region. But the TRICARE piece was very interesting. I think we learned a lot about how to communicate what TRICARE was to the retirees and, and how it, I mean, I, I asked them to bring the, the contract in so I could read it. And it was like literally this high off the ground up to your, your waist. And you, as you read it, and I read the whole thing, it was discontinuous from one, the first inch to the next inch to the next inch to the next inch because it was written by committees and different people. And so we, we were kind of trying to make it up as we went and tried to work 
very closely with Foundation Health Federal Services, which was my contractor. But some of the things that you would say, well, give me the data. And they say, well, where do you want me to back up the truck to drop off the data? And that frustrated me to to no end because you need data to make data-driven decisions about referral patterns and all that other kind of stuff. But that's not what the contract said. So we've got those things changed for the next level of contracts. So I think that that was useful. The useful outcome was giving unvarnished feedback to the people in D.C. so the next set of contracts could be better and better. In the late 90s, you became the commander of the U.S. Army Medical Department Center and School, and now it's called the Medical Center of Excellence. And the motto, and I don't know when the motto started, but it's Army Medicine Starts Here. And this is where a lot of the the training goes on for the medics and how we take care of the next war. The next war is coming up really soon. You may not know exactly when, but what were the priorities as the commander of the AMED Center and School in the late 90s before 9-11 happened? Well, I think one of the priorities was to kind of break down the barriers between the AMED Center and School and the rest of the force. My sense was it was rather self-contained. A lot of people have been there a long time, those kinds of things. So trying to make it absolutely relevant to the people in the units so that we really got good lessons learned and those kinds of things was a big push. We started the international, what we call the Medical Strategic Leader Program, because we don't go to war by ourselves, right? So I wanted to find a way to engage with senior officers from our allies. So that program, I think, is still continuing. There's quite a number of those folks that came through and became surgeons general of their own forces. So I thought that was a, a piece. The, it seemed to me that our approach to education was behind the times. I think people don't learn by being lectured to by PowerPoint. And so we had some really innovative leaders there. And that's when we um, started to switch to 68 Whiskey back then. But it seemed to me that the combat medic of the future was going to be more technologically enabled, that they needed to have really more small group instructions. So we broke them down in platoons. We'd already had a little pilot of doing that with just the standard medic. But then we applied it to the new curriculum, had to carve out six weeks from of training time from other places. So we did that. I had a great officer, Johnny Walker, was real important. Important. Glenn Taplin was real important to making all this happen. Rob DeLorenzo was, he's, I think he's still an active duty, an ER doc. That, and so we pushed to get them all National Registry certified. And the other piece of the 91 Whiskey Program was this wasn't just a one-time deal. So this was going to roll into the force where they could get sustainment training and have to document and demonstrate their skills, the basic skills of a combat medic on a regular basis. And they equated it to tank table eight. So uh, you start taking that mentality of demonstrating performance on a regular basis and then realizing that simulation was coming. And so we invited every 
simulation person we could think of to come and do a show us what they had. And so we started in some ways reshaping that industry by saying, no, here, here's what we need. We, we, we can't have this big colossal computer system. It's got to be something like put in the back of an ambulance. And so places like Harvard and Summit and started and met the different simulator companies started to come back with things that were more useful. And I remember some years later talking to a combat medic in Iraq, I think it was, and he says, yeah, what I do, he says, uh, it's less stressful than being with those simulators that yeah, uh, we were having to do at the AMED Center in school. So I guess that sort of gives you several of the priorities, at least. Again, there was a whole slew of people that were involved in all that stuff. People like Frank Novier was my chief, one of the chiefs of staff there, Deputy Commander Frank Blakely. Sergeant Major Jim Applin actually made a career later after, after he retired of training the, the combat medics. Sandy Townsend was a command sergeant major down there, and she moved up to be command sergeant major when I became surgeon general. And it was an incredible group of people that the AMED has that I think is really worth appreciating. In June of 2000, you became the 40th U.S. Army Surgeon General. Just put us in the mindset of where Army medicine was in the year 2000 in that pre-9-11 era. I think it was in a pretty good place, actually. It was full of really highly qualified and good people. And, and it was, I think they were pretty comfortable, actually. We were, TRICARE was starting to take form. So my kind of the pre-9-11 piece of what I wanted to do was try to get alignment across the whole force. And so we adopted this balanced scorecard approach, which I don't know, still around, I guess, to some degree. It said there are three things that we do. It's pretty simple. We have to maintain a, a medically ready force and then a ready medical force. And then we need to manage the care of our beneficiaries, those three things. And then you know, start to align, okay, well, what, what do we have to do to do that well? And so we started putting those pieces so we could get our priorities and a strategic plan around that and decide what initiatives we needed to do that would enhance those missions. And actually, how it was executed was that each of the subordinate organizations had to create their own strategy map and balance scorecard and then kind of brief back so that that didn't have to be exactly like the one we had at OTSG, but it had to be relevant to that one at OTSG. And I think that that worked pretty well. So that, that was kind of the pre-9-11 focus. So tell us how your world changed on 9-11. Radically. On 9-11, I had a meeting. It was a commander's conference, video commander's conference. So I had them all on the screen. Somebody said, well, they were here. Was a plane hit at one of the towers in New York City. And at first report, it was like a small plane or something. So I didn't think too much of it. But then as the meeting progressed, they got a note slipped to me that, well, it was another plane. And oh, by the way, the first one was a big plane. And so Bruce McBay was one of my ops officers. And I said, okay, I want you to go over. We were in Skyline at the time. And so I said, I want you to go to the Pentagon Ops Center so we can get really ground truth of what's going on because they'll, they'll know what's going on. So I get a call from Bruce 
said he needs to talk to you. So I didn't know what was going on. He says, well, I just saw, an, he, he was driving to the Pentagon. He said, I just saw an airplane go into the Pentagon. And he says, oh yeah, there now are, there's a plume of black smoke coming up. And so I walked back in the room and General Timbo was the commander of Walter Reed. I says, send right now before, right immediately send a, a team down, you know, an emergency team to the Pentagon and just said, basically everybody needs to be on high alert at this point because you don't know what, we don't know what's going on here really. We knew New York was hit pretty hard. We didn't know the extent of it and so forth, but we started to preposition some stock up at Stewart Air Force Base if we needed to reinforce the hospitals in New York. So we had kind of started putting those kinds of things in motion. But then we had a bunch of burned men and women from the Pentagon. So we tracked them all through the night to find out where they were and kind of followed them along. But then it was into the daily Army Ops Center sometimes multiple times a day briefings and starting to lay out what the plan was. So on New Year's Eve that I went over to Afghanistan with General Keene, who I'd worked with, he, he'd, we'd been in the same battalion in Vietnam, and then I, we were together at Fort Bragg. He was the deputy corps commander, I guess, at the time. He was the vice when, when I was Surgeon General. So we went over and met with our forward surgical teams that were there and, and those young men, special operations guys who had ridden the horses with General Dostin in the Northern Alliance, calling in airstrikes for the Northern Alliance. So that's that's kind of how 9-11 unfolded for me. And then we were laying out how to support the force. We weren't fighting the force, of course, that's CENTCOM's job, but we were trying to make sure that everything was aligned so they had the assets that they needed. And that meant in many cases, kind of the one by one replacements, filling, cross leveling different units to make sure that we had the right specialty mix and those kinds of things. Again, the heavy reliance on the reserves. That's the other thing we had to, at the Surgeon General's office, what we were doing was we had to go and justify every reservist that was brought on to active duty, essentially. And so the plan, of course, was, well, okay, we'll bring in reserve units to backfill the people that leave out of a Walter Reed or a Brook or whatever. That wasn't necessarily how it, it evolved. So because some of those people were needed for other things. And there was some reluctance on Secretary Rumsfeld's part about bringing on the reserves kind of willy nilly. So. Those are the kinds of things that we were dealing with. Of course, there was anthrax that happened, what, seven days later or something like that. So John Parker was the MRMC commander, so he was dealing with a large part of that. And then the debates about whether we could immunize the force or not on, for anthrax, which we ultimately did. But When you look back on those, those months right after 9-11 and you think about all the strategic planning that occurred and the events that unfolded when we eventually invaded Afghanistan. What lessons do you think that you really appreciated when you look back on those that say this was really a, a great accomplishment of military medicine? I think the fact that we were able to field the force with such quality people that we, we Army Medicine, were cheek by jowl with the line leadership so that we were really a part of the force, not something kind of thought of afterwards. 
what we were doing was really aligned and not an afterthought. It was really part of the, the considerations for every one of the senior leaders that we had. So you were involved in the, the planning and execution stages for both Afghanistan and Iraq, the operations there. How were they similar and how were they different? And what had you learned from Afghanistan that you could apply to Iraq? Well, I think the difference was with Iraq, it was more of a of a force buildup in Kuwait. I think it, we had a, a a more, I guess, structured base of operations to do the invasion. And it was a much more public buildup. But in, in terms of fundamentals, I don't think there was that much difference because you have to echelon your forces. So there's a role for the forward surgical you know, capabilities. There's a role for the follow-on. There's a role for establishing an evacuation system that initially is somewhat tenuous, but then you continue to evolve it and build it. And in both cases, you had to work with the other services that, to make sure that there was a coordinated effort. Yeah, one of the things we we had the opportunity to talk to General P.K. Carlton, and he explained a lot about the evacuation strategy and how it really did require cooperation of all the forces. What was your role in that and your thought of this critical care concept in the air? Well, that had started well before that. We, it's interesting, the burn unit, I, yeah, when I was at Brook and as a general surgery resident, I rotated on the burn unit and I flew with them on a number of occasions to pick up badly injured burn patients. When I was the commander in Korea, we had a helicopter accident the Marines had did and had 19 badly burned Marines. So we basically turned the hospital into a burn unit and then got the burn unit to come and pick them up. And what, what, what strikes me about it is the a trauma patient really, once you get the, that initial resuscitation done, they're, they're okay for about two or three days. And so you get them on the plane and you get them back to a place where they can really take care of them. That, that always seemed like the right thing to do for me as far as I was concerned. And so we pushed early for the, the critical care and the air teams and PK. He did his general surgery residency at Lackland when I was doing mine at the Brook. We were, we've known each other for a long time. So I don't know if you've listened to many of our past episodes, but many of our prior guests will say, well, General Peak allowed me to do this. General Peak, General Peak. And I, I think that that's just an amazing aspect of you that it seemed like you were able to enable other people to do what they need to do. John Holcomb is one. I was actually talking with a vascular surgeon, Ben Starnes, who said you need to talk to Dr. Quartz about how he got fluoroscopic imaging at Madigan. And Dr. Quartz says, well, it's General Peak. And so as we go through all these guests, they tell us that General Peak enabled yeah them to do their jobs. But yet here we are in the middle of a war, right? And so you're enabling people. How did you decide how you were going to channel the resources that you got from the federal government for military medicine? You didn't have an unlimited paycheck oh, for military no. medicine. How did you decide when people would come to you with their ideas? I'm going to support this one or I'm not because you're also trying to balance beneficiary care with wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. That's one of the things about the balance scorecard. Everybody and their brother wanted to get their their pet project 
somehow tied into the balance scorecard. And my approach was, is this going to advance the cause? Is this to, to accomplish those three missions? And when it did, I was, I'd go after the resources. I mean, I remember going up and testifying before Congress that I didn't have any venture capital. The, the acting Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs chastised me afterwards. But I got 35 million earmarked to the Army. The Navy Surgeon General and the Air Force Surgeon General got $35 million each. And that's when we started. If you, you may, you may have benefited. Well, you, you were, you were in middle school, I know, Wayne, but we, we started saying, okay, come with your best ideas. Show me what the return on investment is going to be, whether it's a dollar return on investment or whether it's a, a quality return on investment or an efficiency improvement. I want to understand what the return is. So we started trying to teach people about and encouraging them to have a business mindset to things. And I had great young officers that had their MBAs and that kind of stuff. And so they went around and we taught people about, here's how, here's how to think about creating so that you're adding value, not just playing. No, in all honesty, we've wasted some money and I don't think we took a, a, systemic enough approach to telemedicine early on. I think we still suffer from that a little bit, but I think we get a champion and then they, it would take a year to order the telemedicine equipment. And then by the time it got there, they were moved on. And so it'd be in the closet, those kinds of things. So, I mean, I, I wish I could say it was all perfect, but I, I think just encouraging that entrepreneurial spirit was a, was a good thing. And, as I've sort of said all along here, the people that uh, we've had to deal with, I had Fred Gerber who's as, as my ops guy. So I sent him to work with the coalition leadership there in Iraq. And I mean, just people that you just like John Holcomb. I mean, he was a medical student for me. That's really where I first met him on rotating on my thoracic service, but just done tremendous things. And Giving people the opportunity to to follow their own passions, I think, has been the, the blessing from my in my career. I mean, I didn't accomplish anything by myself. I don't think. So. One of the things that that I always think about when we have these conversations is a quote from Aldous Huxley, and, and I'll paraphrase: "It's the, the greatest lesson of history is that man doesn't learn the lessons of history." And one of the things that we saw is kind of a rediscovery of things, the importance of tourniquets, whole blood. How do we ensure that we pass along these lessons, these important lessons to the next conflict and prevent that walker dip from happening or at least blunt it a little bit? I think that's the, it is a huge challenge. And as the trauma centers in the United States don't see the kind of trauma that we see on a modern battlefield. I think the danger is, and I've counseled subsequent surgeons on this that that you think that okay, well we're 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 going to rigidly enforce doctrine. I think that we're going to continue to learn, and we what we want is the environment where you have different capabilities packages that you can assemble and reassemble and realign, and you have headquarters that can coordinate all of those those kinds of things from a from a structural perspective. I think. I, I do believe that simulation 
can be, and, and Doug, you and I have talked about simulation before, but I'm a believer that simulation can be really a helpful piece, keeping, getting those lessons learned and at least to the front of mind. You don't want people to be so, well, I mean, one of the lessons learned was that tourniquets can lead to amputations, right? Well, that's that was a lesson that somebody learned at some point, and it negatively affected the care of our soldiers until people were entrepreneurial enough to say, no, there is a role for tourniquets and here's how to use them and let's train you how to use them and let's go find the best kind of tourniquet that we can buy for and, and put in the hands of our soldiers. And that, that's part of what, with the 91 Whiskey, it was not that the curriculum that we made back then was going to be the curriculum, but it was like, okay, look, there's six more weeks here that over time, what we train is going to be different and we will allow you to have more technological advancement that you can carry with you. I mean, you just think about the miniaturization of of lab equipment that you can, you can have that kind of a capability far forward. And as now people are talking about this prolonged field care, I think the opportunity for leveraging that combat medic that has more technological capability, the ability to do telementoring and so forth is, is going to change the way the battlefield looks as it has, but, and it, it will continually evolve. How did serving as an infantry officer with 101st in Vietnam shape your approach to leadership? Well, as I, as I said, I mean, I had people like Charlie Ottstadt and Steve Arnold as company commanders, and I don't think there's any magic about it. To be honest with you, I, I just had really good role models. And what I think I came away with is the importance of the people. And that's it's the people that are part of the unit, the people that are your your intermediate leaders. That's that's what makes makes a unit hum is when and when everybody cares. And so creating that and and trying to model that. I think is what I saw from them and what I hope I did a little bit of myself. Are there any behind the scenes stories from your time in the Pentagon that people would be surprised to something that happened? You said, wow, that I just can't even believe that happened. Well, I'll tell you, it, it, it kind of depends on when, you, when you're in the Pentagon. I can remember sitting in General Keene's office and we just walked up from like seven stories down or whatever it is from the army ops center. And it was the day after or a couple of days after the uh, plane had embedded itself. And we were just thinking, here we are two quarters down or whatever it was. Uh, there's a huge airplane embedded in this building and the army is continuing to function and planning to go to war. And here we are sitting in this office with dead people in that metal tube stuck in the building and the army goes rolling along. Well, that was the first thing I was thinking about when you said that you got the report that a plane had flown into the Pentagon. It wasn't locked down all the MTFs. It was to tell Walter Reed to send a team down there immediately. And that just to me embodies what we do as military medicine. So one of the things that is really, really important to the Army is the Army values. 
And of the core values, are there any that are more important than others or which one is the most important in guiding you as an officer? I think they're all important. It it was interesting you say that because I mentioned General Reimer. General Reimer was the chief of staff of the Army. We had an issue with his Army Major that support the Army values. And so he spent a lot of time restating it. That was at the Amen Center in school at the time. And we, we took it very seriously about what we, the opportunity to touch all these young men and women with the importance of what those values are, loyalty, duty, respect, selfless service, honor, integrity, personal, personal courage. And I think all of, all of them are important and it, it may be very in different times of your life or different parts of your work, but I think they really are all important. And I remember... I mean, I used to wander through the mess hall and I'd sit down and sit with a random soldier and have breakfast or lunch or something. And I remember this young lady, I think she did private or spec board or something. So we got to talking about the army values and she says, yeah, I went home on leave and I told my sister she needed to join the army. And I said, why is that? And she says, cause she needs these army values. She's going to be in trouble if she doesn't get them. She needs to get in here and get some of these army values. And I, I thought, all right, this is working. <laughs> she wants to go and recruit her sister. So we, we, we've been talking a little bit about my age. So I, you were actually my Surgeon General. You, maybe you remember me, but I had just graduated West Point and became a second lieutenant in medical school while you were the Surgeon General. What guidance would you give individuals now that are just beginning their career in military medicine? I would say that it is a tremendous place to practice medicine for all the right reasons. There's so many options, plenty of career choices that you make, but you don't have to make them right at the beginning. What you should be doing is your absolute best at every single thing. Clinical excellence is really important. So focus on that and the rest will take care of itself. Well, following retirement after a distinguished career, Not many people would be upset if you said, I'm going to go play golf and and go to the beach. But but you stayed incredibly busy with important things. And one of those things was you became the Secretary of the Veterans Affairs. And, And that's a huge job. And the VA was in the news at the time. Tell us about leading the VA organization and how different was it from being Surgeon General? And and what were some of your big challenges? Well. When I went back, I'd been the uh, chief operating officer and executive vice president of Project Hope, so a not-for-profit organization. I'd been a executive vice president of QTC, which was a, a for-profit company. But when I came back to the VA, I felt like I was back home. This The sense of mission was very similar to the military. Many of the people were people who I worked with before, worked for me or whatever, Mike Cussman was the Undersecretary for Health. Jerry Cross was the PDS, I guess, at that point. Chuck Hume was the CIO. He'd been worked for me in the military. And what I felt was the the same kind of things that we just talked about in terms of leadership were important. So I spent as much time as I could getting out into the field, meeting people. Every place I went, I would say, I want to spend an hour with 12 to 15 people that are frontline people with no supervisors at all. 
Hal Blair, who I'd mentioned before, was my chief of staff at the 44th Med Brigade, had retired in Alaska and worked for the VA. So he came and was an executive assistant for me. And he knew a lot about the VA from having worked in it. So that was really helpful. But I had a really great front office staff. But getting out and just talking frankly to people, it was like talking to soldiers. I used to, that was one of the things I enjoyed most about being a surgeon general. You go and you visit someplace and you do a little town hall and you you talk to soldiers. And they're great. They'll tell you what's on their mind if you give them half a chance. So I enjoyed that aspect of, of the VA very much. There's a lot of politics in the VA because every congressman, every congresswoman has some VA, either brick or mortar or veterans or VA employees in their district. So, and they're very jealous of that and very guarded of that. And the, the VA has a more distributed approach to to leadership. So there's there's a, a little bit different dynamic politically than I found in the Army. But by and large, it is a big, complex organization, but so is the Army and so is the AMET. So I felt really at home with the mission. I felt like I've been taking care of soldiers all my life, and this is just the next phase of it, you know. To the Surgeon General, when we surge into or enter into Iraq and Afghanistan, but then you become the leader of the VA during a time when a lot of the heavy casualties are starting and amputees and severely wounded are coming back from OIF and OEF. How did the VA help in caring for these brave service members? And what were the major lessons you learned in that process? The VA, they set up their polytrauma centers and connected them so that we could share information really quite a bit more than what you might read in the press, but the to be able to share information back and forth. I think the two institutions don't know enough about each other is a lesson learned. And it's one of the things that I really wanted to change a bit. So I I called General Schoomaker, who was the Surgeon General at the time. We exchanged liaison officers so that I had somebody on my staff so that we could go back and forth and really kind of have a better understanding of what's going on. I, I found people in the VA that didn't necessarily trust military medicine, that but they'd never been a part of it. So I, I think those are things that could continue to be improved. The other thing I would tell you is people, active duty people don't know the VA, don't know what's all available to them. And don't, even though you, we put VA people into, as an example, Walter Reed to help counsel people to get them ready to transfer to the VA, they wouldn't pay any attention to it until right at the the time they're getting discharged. So there's a an information and knowledge gap that I think we need to continue to improve and think through. How do you make that more user-friendly, customer-friendly? So I'm interested, since you, you had this amazing military medical career, what is your most interesting or memorable case that you remember? Well, you think about the cases that I'm sure you do too, Wayne, that didn't go as planned. I remember I was in Korea, I was operating on a little baby who was with a patent ductus. And so I tied off the ductus and the thing tore. And I thought, oh my God, what's going to happen? So, yeah, but got that controlled and the, the baby did well. But so just one example. You were in leadership senior leadership when you were in OIF and OEF. 
did you have any opportunities to when you were kind of touring the battlefields and the the caches and the hospitals did you ever get a chance to scrub in and and, and do any clinical cases and and what do you remember from that no I, I i did once or twice and basically the fifth wheel i what i was more worried about was getting in the way there was a young marine that was a shot in a training accident in Kuwait. And I remember scrubbing it on his case and ultimately seeing him later and following up with him. So he did fine, but it wasn't because of me. So when, when the history books hundred years from now are, are written, what would you like those books to say about your legacy in military medicine and in federal health care? Not much of a legacy guy myself, but I guess I would hope they'd recognize all these great people that actually accomplished all these things that you've been talking about here. We've been speaking with retired Army Lieutenant General Dr. James Peak on War Docs. Thanks, sir, for sharing your experiences and your insights, and, and thank you for your service to this nation. You've done a lot of amazing things, and we want to just say thank you. No, I appreciate it. Good to be with you guys. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team War Docs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.